Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Gator Sports Podcast with your host, Zach Albuverde. Coming in hot. And Graham Hall. Jumping, coming smooth. Jumping, and the bass gets jumping. Brought to you by the Gainesville Sun and Gatorsports.com. Welcome into the Gator Sports Podcast presented by the Gainesville Sun. I'm your host, Zach Albaverde, joined to my right by my co-host, Graham Hall. And we are here to talk not just Florida football, but an actual game in the first of the 2021 season. Welcome back into the pod. We missed you guys last week, but good news for you from this week moving forward. We have two episodes a week, so a lot to get you through this fall, and Graham and I are ready to recap this game and talk about all the fallout from it. Graham, how's it going? How was your weekend? Good being here, man. I had a really good Saturday, a lot of good football on. It really started with that Big Ten matchup to me, Penn State-Wisconsin. I know some people were dogging it. It was great. Yeah, great football. I mean, I think some SEC fans who are making fun of that brand of football – they kind of got their comeuppance later that night with the Georgia-Clemson game. Well, I'll tell you what, though. It was not a good week one for the ACC. No, it was I mean, not. Just over on all of their meaningful matchups. Is NC State the best team? Could be. I mean, they absolutely could be. So, obviously, we saw the Seminoles put up a fight against Notre Dame, but not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the Florida Gators and how they looked against Florida Atlantic in game one. Certainly the talk was the quarterbacks after the game, the rushing performance, 400 yards, and a really nice night from the defense until the fourth quarter when they kind of went in prevent mode. But we have a lot to get into on today's show. Graham and I did a swamp cast after the game. You can go check out at Gatorsports.com to get kind of our instant reaction right afterwards. But now we've had a couple nights to sleep on it and take in all the replays and rewatches and stats that have come out, and takes. And there's been a lot of them, Graham. And I think there's not a Florida fan out there that doesn't want to talk about the quarterback position. And specifically, Anthony Richardson. And you got to feel for Emory, he waits four years to make his first career start, and afterwards, everybody's talking about the other guy. It absolutely means that the phrase that you hear all the time, the backup quarterback is the most beloved guy on the team, it's so true because last year fans were calling, oh, we want to see more of Emory Jones. <laughs> the year before, Felipe Franks, you wanted to see more of Emory Jones even after Kyle Trask took over for those last eight games. People were calling for it last season. And then you go in to the season opener, and it's the third quarter. And yeah, Emory Jones made a couple mistakes, but he looked really, really good running the hurry-up offense. They had a really quick pace of play. I think they had, what, 85 plays? I mean, I don't think he made a mistake when they were running the quick-tempo offense. It really was kind of when they slowed things down, got into the red zone, tried to kind of, I think, do a little bit too much. And you also saw, I think, a lot of that rust. But 
by the third quarter, Zach, I mean, people were already saying, I mean, they weren't going as far as to say, get this guy off my team, but they were wanting to see the other backup quarterback. And it didn't help Emory Jones's case that that backup quarterback looked really good. Like, really, really good. And we have covered him. I, I was saying this in the Swampcast. We've had a unique perspective of Anthony Richardson. You and I both know from covering him at the high school level, getting to know his coach, that this is an absolute baller. We had no doubt in our mind at some point in his tenure at UF, Anthony Richardson was going to see the field and be extremely good. But based on our knowledge of Dan Mullen, favoritism towards senior quarterbacks, his also propping up of Emory Jones. I mean, you saw at SEC Media Days, even though he didn't bring him, he went on Paul Feinbaum, said, oh, he can make all the throws. He's not just a dual-threat quarterback. He's a mobile passer. He, he gives us a little bit more of an edge on offense, in a sense, because he can create things with his legs that Kyle Trask necessarily couldn't do. You heard all this raving about him, and he that stuff still may absolutely be true. But people are already, Zach, trying to see more of the backup quarterback, which I do understand. It's happened at Florida before more than once. So why not do it this season if it can really make your offense take them to the next level? But to say, I mean, oh, this is what Emory Jones is. I've seen him for three quarters. Oh, I know what he is now, and I don't totally like it. That is ludicrous. That made no sense to me. Man, if I was Emory Jones, I would be a little bit angry, a little bit disrespected. I mean, for one I get where Florida fans are coming from because they just have the expectation of the guy before him. It's like when you followed up Steve Spurrier or Urban Meyer as a coach. You don't want to be the next guy in line after one of the greats. And that's what Emory Jones is. He's following up Kyle Trask, one of the best quarterbacks in school history. So he's going to be held to that standard and everybody's going to look at him in that light. And how he performed when he took over as a starter as a redshirt junior, and the f- amazing performance that he put on at Kentucky in that comeback win. Not everyone's going to play like that their first start, and not everyone's going to develop in the same way. And Graham, everybody's harped on the interceptions thrown by Emory Jones, and it were some bad picks. But how many bad interceptions did Kyle Trask throw? In his last game as a Gator, horrible pick six that he threw against LSU. I mean, it happens to the best of them, happens in their last game, happens in their first game. So I I think don't overreact too much to Emory Jones' first career start, but I think he expected better, Dan Mullen expected better, Florida fans expected more, and like you said, it didn't help that then the backup got in the game and did what he did. Best rushing performance that we've seen from a Florida quarterback, save for Tim Tebow, against Ole Miss when he set the school record 166 yards. Six more than what Anthony Richardson had against the Owls. But he did it in 20 fewer carries. So it just shows you know, really what he's capable of. But after the game, Graham, I mean, you just knew that this was going to be a conversation and people were going to say this guy who's the backup needs to be now the starter. And what I wrote about kind of my thoughts from after the game was that I think people just have kind of a misconception about what the plan is this year, and they haven't been hearing Dan. Like, he has said since the spring, I'm preparing two starters 
at quarterback. You guys aren't listening. He doesn't look at Anthony Richardson as a backup. Yes, Emory Jones is QB1, but he feels like he has two starters at the position. He's been saying that since the spring. And then I outlined it in my story dating back to the summer of all the hints that he's dropped about Anthony Richardson. I mean, you mentioned how he propped up Emory Jones in Hoover, and he did. But the first time that he took the mic, and you noticed this, Graham, when he first talked about the quarterback position, he made sure to mention, we have two quarterbacks, and Anthony Richardson is competing with Emory Jones. And yeah, you might think that that's coach speak, but then he starts preseason camp, reiterates it again, says Emory's still got to win the job even though everybody's looking at him as the guy. But when asked, what is Anthony Richardson going to learn by quote-unquote watching Emory play, Mullen quickly fired back, well, he's going to be on the field this year. I mean, right away. And then everyone knows after that first scrimmage how he just offered it up that AR-15 threw three touchdowns in the first scrimmage and had an unbelievable performance. He's been dropping these hints the whole time. He was always planning to play two quarterbacks. And and I think Emory Jones was always going to be the first guy to walk out there and get that opportunity to quote-unquote start. But he has two guys that he considers starters. So for everyone that wants to see Anthony play more and wants to see him on the field, you were always going to get your wish. This plan was always going to be in place to use the both of them. Now it's up to Emory moving forward what he's going to do with the series that he gets, and he's going to get the first crack at it. But does he have some mishaps like he did against the Hours, or does he go out there and perform well with the possessions that he gets? And then Anthony Richardson does what he does with the series that he gets. But that's always been the plan going into the season, and I I don't think what we saw Saturday was a surprise, at least in Dan's eyes. You're absolutely right that we're going to see him on the field. I actually was a little bit surprised at how many ways we saw him on the field. The first one that stood out to me was at the end of the first half when Florida is you know, trying to put some more points on the board up just 14-0, and you look downfield, and there's six foot four Anthony Richardson in the end zone looking to haul in Emory Jones's Hail Mary. Crazy. I, I just kind of was shocked by that. And then, you know, even last year, I was kind of pausing sometimes when Kyle Trask was in there on these fourth and goal situations trying to you know jump over the line quarterback sneak it in (laughs) I was always saying hey man I mean you could risk getting your quarterback injured but you know never happened so obviously Dan Mullen is going to keep finding new ways to possibly endanger his quarterbacks I'm just joking around by that but if you saw there at the end as the Willie Taggarts were not giving up at the end of the game, they attempted the onside kick, and lo and behold, who's in there on the hands team? Anthony Richardson. Twice. And ex- Exactly. And we've seen that frequently. I mean, I don't know if people know this, but, I mean, you watched Eastside. I mean, he would consistently line up in the shotgun against a, a box that was stacked with nine men, and he would run like that with the football out, and he has such strong hands and large hands that he would rarely, I think I maybe saw him fumble twice, covering his high school career and then we all know that he's a hooper and i asked oh man like why you know what's the thought process behind putting him out there on the hail mary and mullen says well if we went on the basketball court he's our power forward 
So that's if that's the guy I'm asking to go up and get a rebound, that's the guy I'm asking to go up and get the jump ball. I'm imagining he was like this, you know, 10-year-old kid palming a basketball while all these other adults out there are struggling to do it. I mean, that's just incredible. And Dan Mullen is, yeah, going to find ways, like I just said, to get him on the field. I think the most is presumed that it would be at quarterback. Some people had joked that, you know, he'd line up there at tight end. I don't really think that's going to ultimately end up being a joke, but it has been, if you have listened to us, if you've listened to Dan Mullen, if you listen to anyone who has talked about the Gators, you have heard that Anthony Richardson is going to be on the field. And so maybe you, if you've listened to that, you were a little bit less surprised by what you saw on Saturday night, but a lot of people, Zach, 86,000 were, I think, a little bit taken aback when they watched Richardson dart 73 yards down the sideline for that run. I mean, he did look like Cam Newton light, and it's hard not to talk about Anthony Richardson right now and his potential and not mention quarterbacks like Cam Newton, Tim Tebow, and then bring up the dual quarterback system. And it's just an exciting time right now as a Florida fan. You know the saying that, you know, if you have two quarterbacks, you don't really have one. I mean, that just may not be true anymore here. Well, Steve Spurrier would disagree with that. Dan Mullen would certainly disagree with that. When we come back from this first break, we're going to talk about two quarterback systems and the success that not only Mullen but Spurrier have had with them and it was something that Mullen brought up this week during his Monday press conference so we'll discuss kind of his history using two quarterbacks as well as the HBC we we'll right back after this break. this is Gainesville Sun sports editor Arnold Feliciano please support our coverage of University of Florida athletics like subscribing to the Gainesville Sun or Gatorsports.com. It's easy. Just go to www.gainesville.com slash subscribe now. Thank you for your support. Welcome back to the Gator Sports Podcast. Zach and Graham here. And Mullen was asked Monday about a two-quarterback system and specifically Lee and Tebow because it was basically mentioned to him that for Florida fans, when they think of a two-quarterback system, that's what they think of. And Mullen pointed out, well, that's one way to use two quarterbacks, but in his eyes, that's not a real two-quarterback system. He felt like what a true two-quarterback system was was what Steve Spurrier used to do back in the day, when you would actually have guys alternating every other play or every other series and just frequently getting in the game, not kind of what Dan has planned this year and what he's done in seasons past where it was just a guy getting a series or a package of plays, but kind of wasn't getting anything near the majority of the snaps of the other guy. And we'll talk about what the plan could be this year with Anthony and Emery. But, I mean, it was fascinating to hear him talk about being a young assistant coach at Columbia and seeing Steve Spurrier from afar rotating these quarterbacks, Doug uh, Johnson and Noah Brindice against Florida State, and just – Wondering kind of what his thought process was behind that. Why was he doing it and how he managed that? Because he's thinking of how that could disrupt the rhythm with the passing game and the quarterbacks and the team. So then obviously he became a quarterback coach and offensive coordinator. And it's something he did at Florida and Mississippi State. But I mean, Graham, you grew up here in Gainesville. I mean, playing two quarterbacks, that was just a regular for this Florida football program. It was. And they should realize how much a luxury it actually really is here. I know that some people think that it's a common thing, but often that can really 
I think, hinder your team, especially right now. You got to give Steve Spurrier a whole lot of credit for being able to pull off, being able to play multiple quarterbacks in past years, because I think there were a few less in- incentives yeah. to do so. Right now, you get a five-star quarterback, four-star quarterback in here. You're going to be, I think, a little bit, you know, itching to play them before they're ready just because you don't want them to hit the transfer portal and because you have the four games. You can get that four-game experience and then still they can preserve that red shirt. Uh, I, I think that that is absolutely huge for quarterbacks right now. So I mean, we're looking at a Florida program that has two younger quarterbacks right now that aren't really going to, I think, see the field right now in Jalen Kitna and Carlos Del Rio Wilson because you don't want to put them in there before they're ready even though that incentive is there, you're not going to see Dan Mullen really do that. They're only going to run multiple quarterbacks right now when it can elevate the offense. I think that's also, I think, a huge difference right now. While other people and other programs, I think, are itching, like I said, to be playing multiple quarterbacks, I think it can hinder you. If the Gators can do it effectively and see their other two quarterbacks realize, hey, I'm going to have a chance to see the field possibly next year because we can run two quarterbacks. That's huge for a program to establish that. And this is not, like you said, something that's becoming established just in the Dan Mullen era. This is going on now three decades. Yeah, Graham, and Dan Mullen said, if you really want to talk to somebody about a true two-quarterback system, then ask Coach Spurrier. So I did. And obviously he's known for what he did with Doug Johnson and Noah Brindice in 1997, but His two quarterback systems and rotations date back years before that, all the way to when he had Terry Dean and Danny Warfel rotating back in the day. And then after Warfel moved on, you had first Doug Johnson and Noah Brindice. And then you had Doug Johnson and Jesse Palmer. And then you had Jesse Palmer and Rex Grossman. I mean, so many different years that he did this and and in different ways. And you look at, you know, obviously what he did – with uh, Doug Johnson and Noah Brindis, very successful against the Seminoles, kind of did it differently with uh, Jesse Palmer and Rex Grossman. And it was a situation where each of those guys kind of got their own games to start and their opportunities in the season to be the guy, and it wasn't a a two-quarterback system where they're kind of rotating within the game. And that's kind of the example that Steve Spurrier mentioned when I asked him about the two-quarterback system and all the plans that Dan Mullen has for it, Spurrier's quote was, if you have two players that are pretty close ability-wise and one of them's having a bad day, there's nothing wrong with putting the other one in there. <laughs> and then Spurrier said, in fact, the last championship we won here when I was coaching in 2000, Rex Grossman played in four SEC wins and Jesse Palmer played in the other four. And everybody said, you got to have a great quarterback. Well, we had two. We had two. And Spurrier goes on to say, and Rex, some days he acted like he was lost out there, and other days he was fantastic. He said Jesse would come in, and I think Jesse sprained his ankle real bad, and he was right. It was against Georgia. And then he said, Rex did very well. So we had two quarterbacks who were instrumental in that last SEC championship that our team won. So that was kind of Spurrier's take on it. Mullen, the way that he's used two quarterbacks is a little bit different, I think, than Spurrier. Because sometimes Spurrier, especially reading up some of these old articles, there wasn't a set formula or a pre-plan in place. Like, he would just go out there sometimes and wing it and just use a guy based on how the game was going and who had the hot hand. 
for Mullen, he likes to have a plan in place and throughout the week of practice, see how it's going. And it could change from week to week. But once they get into Saturday, Emory Jones and Dan Mullen both said the guys know what the plan is. I mean, Emory Jones knew what it was when he was the backup coming in, and now he knows what it is as the starter with Anthony coming in. So there's really no surprises. And I think also the way that Dan uses two quarterbacks is is different. I think Spurrier, it was like if if two guys were good enough, they're both going to play. Sometimes Dan's going to use a second guy, even if he isn't as good as a starter, but just because he wants to develop him and get him experience and get him in some big-time environments or or just get his feet wet uh, so that when it's his time to be the starter, he's not just coming in there green. So, But he did give Spurrier the credit for kind of teaching him and showing him that there is a way to utilize two guys within a season. I think that when Spurrier did it, they had to be very very familiar with the same offense so that you often were seeing guys competing in camp, in practice, running the same plays with the same wide receivers so that they had the tempo down with everyone. So seeing Anthony Richardson coming in and working with a different set of wide receivers or a different offensive line, I think that's not necessarily what Dan Mullen is trying to do. I don't think that's something that he really thinks is successful to a quarterback's development, having him experiment in a game scenario with guys that he really hasn't nailed down the chemistry, the timing, whatever you want to call it. Remember the last time that that really happened was the Cotton Bowl, and it was Emory Jones who was going out there in the middle of the game after Kyle Trask exited and throwing with a line that he wasn't accustomed to practicing with throughout the year and receivers that he really hadn't developed a rapport with, and it really was not, I think, beneficial to him, so much so that we talked about him kind of forgetting that moving on to the next play. Which is why when you saw Anthony Richardson check into the game at first, who's lined up right next to him? Demarcus Bowman and Lorenzo Lingard, the guys that he's been practicing with all in fall camp. It's a platoon swap, and it makes a lot of sense here because this is what Florida has been trying to do on both sides of the football. You look at what we've heard from Todd Grantham. He wants two units, really, 24 guys available who can really play seamlessly with each other. I think here with Anthony Richardson, the guys that he's worked with, he's worked with the ones enough now at this point where really they can swap out a few pieces as long as he has similar guys near him that he's worked with I think he's able to be successful but the different package system I think is extremely interesting because yeah I know a lot of people want to say that is a credit to what you saw with Chris Leak and Tim Tebow back in 2006 and that's what I think people are really expecting here and if I had to really guess right now I think that is what we are going to see play out more throughout the season but Anthony Richardson also showed I mean, this isn't a knock on Tim Tebow, but I don't remember in the season opener, and I was only 13. No, he was not throwing like Anthony, and he didn't have the ability that Anthony does, just doesn't. And I don't remember him ever going off for 73 yards in a game like that. And maybe it happened a few times, but I mean, it looked so easy against FAU. And, I, you know, people are out there saying, oh, Graham, it's just FAU. And it was the fourth quarter. It was a tired defense. Tired defense. But he made some spectacular moves and plays that would have been successful no matter who the defender was. So I think a lot of people have questions right now. Is Anthony Richardson capable of running the offense like Emory Jones? If he possesses all these other qualities, if he's able to dash for 73 yards and make it look pretty easy, albeit against a tired defense, where is he with being able to manage Emory's package? And that was absolutely a pressing question after the game. And that's exactly what Mullen addressed on Monday because he said, point blank, 
Anthony knows the offense. He knows it. He's a redshirt freshman. He's been here since the bowl practices that he got to participate in. So he's been around the program. He's been within the system. But he said what he lacks is the game reps and the experience that Emory Jones has. And that's really what's separating them right now. But when you look at their skill sets, I mean, at the end of the day, they're both dual-threat quarterbacks. They have their own strengths and weaknesses, but they're dual-threat quarterbacks. So it's interesting. Like it, It's kind of a two-quarterback setup that Mullen's had in the past where he's got a upperclassman and a young guy. But a lot of times when it's been an upperclassman and a young guy, they have different skill sets. In this situation, these guys have some similar traits. So you won't have to change the offense as much as you did like with Trask and Emery or with uh, Tebow and Leak. So it's just going to be interesting to watch this play out. You guys are hearing this conversation this whole time and thinking, well, how do Emery and Anthony feel about this? They know what Dan's plan has been. Like I said, this has been something that has been in the works since the summer. And it could be a potential cause for concern if the two guys weren't on the same page or didn't have the type of relationship that Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson have. And they have talked about it this week, and you saw Anthony take to Twitter on Saturday night after Emory was catching some heat and saying, hey, this guy's going to have a great season. He's going to bounce back from this game. And he's really been supportive of Emory throughout the offseason, like on his own social media account. So it kind of speaks to their relationship. And Emory Jones said on Monday that this is basically like my little brother. I get excited when he makes plays. And when he's going to get in the game, I'm going to be right there trying to help him on the sideline. And that's how this is going to work. And and that's why there's going to be no quarterback controversy. And for everyone that wants to see Anthony Richardson, you're going to get that. And I think you're also going to hopefully see Emory Jones make the most of the time that he's waited on. And I think improve from game one to game two. And then throughout the season, and Dan Mullen said Monday that he expects both guys to do that. So we're going to catch this final break when we come back on the other side. We'll just give our thoughts on the defense heading into the matchup with USF and where they can improve after game one. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Blake Topmeyer, and this is SEC Football Unfiltered, a new podcast from the USA Today Network. Each week, we'll discuss the hottest topics that matter to the passionate fan bases of the SEC. I've covered the SEC for eight years. As for my co-host, longtime sports columnist John Adams, let's just say he's got a few decades on me. Not as many decades as some people think. Contrary to popular opinion, I did not cover General Nealon, but I did interview Bear Bryant, and I interviewed Nick Saban, and I covered Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. More insightful interview, John. Bear Bryant, Archie Manning, Steve Spurrier, or Johnny Majors? Got to go with Steve Spurrier there. He's the great quipster. SEC Football Unfiltered debuts this summer. Let John and I be your tour guides from the season opener through the national championship. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back into the Gator Sports Pod. Zach and Graham here. And 
there's been so much talk about the offense and the running game and the quarterbacks that really hasn't been much discussion about the defense. And I think that maybe that's a good thing, right? No one's complaining. And really wasn't much to complain about through the first three and a half quarters of that game on Saturday. They pitched a shutout. They had some times where the Owls had success offensively, but every time that they crossed midfield, Florida found a way to make a stop and never let their offense get in the end zone with all of their starting defenders on the field. It wasn't until the end of the game when the Gators went up by four scores and they went to prevent mode and they had some of their young backups in the game that the Hours were able to find some success. And, I mean, credit them. They were an improved offense, I think, with Nikosi Perry, and we knew that they were going to give this Gators team a test because they just returned so many starters. You look at what Florida did in the front seven, obviously really disruptive. They had as many sacks on Saturday as they did in any game last season, uh, bringing Perry down six times. Carter got half of those, and they were just really disruptive in the front seven. And in the secondary, I mean, they didn't have any turnovers, didn't have a lot of pass breakups, but they didn't have any blown assignments, it looked like. They didn't have any blown coverages, and they just seemed to be communicating better out there, which is a huge emphasis for that position group. And I think Wesley McGriff, especially with the safeties, has done a good job trying to address that. And like we talked about in the Swamp cast, Graham, they got a lot of guys' experience, especially in the secondary. And I didn't realize why. We talked about it on Saturday, but Mordecai McDaniel made his first career start because Trey Dean got absolutely leveled on the opening kickoff. And props to him for being able to come back in the game because when he got back in, Trey played really well at that safety spot. But a lot of guys, I think, in the secondary got some very valuable playing time against the Owls. Got to say, keep your head on a swivel, but glad Trey Dean is okay. I didn't know what happened to him. I don't think anyone knew why he wasn't out there for Florida's first defensive series. But now that that clip has made its way to social media, uh, it looked like he was making sure that FAU wouldn't break one. So he was kind of just jogging down on the kickoff and Just took one right in the chin. Sometimes that happens there. But your point about the defense, it is very interesting that, you know, we spent the first 20 plus minutes of this podcast talking about the quarterback situation, because if there's anything I think you could take away from last year is that not only is Dan Mullen going to continuously develop quarterbacks, but this Florida team may put up all the passing stats, rushing yards in the world, and it could ultimately be the defense that determines whether they play in the college football playoff or not. So I think that, yeah, the FAU game wasn't enough where you could take away too much about how the defense may fare this season. But really, I think that that is where I think most of the focus is. We know that there is going to be a stable of cornerbacks aside from Kyer Elam. And I really wasn't thoroughly blown away by what we saw out there out of Avery Helm and committee and Elijah Blades who didn't even play in the and second a, half. And a lot of guys with some penalties in and the secondary. I think there were some, you know, rust that contributes as well uh, to defense with, you know, timing and some nerves and jitters getting everything down. I think that obviously they have a way to go as well. And yeah, the old cliche, most improvements happen from game one to two. They absolutely may go out there and put on a dominant performance against the Bulls this weekend. But should. right now, I think that I'm more, if I'm a Florida fan and as a journalist, I think that I'm more confident in 
who Florida has at signal caller right now than I am that they've made the improvements necessary for this team really to make that push for the college football playoff that they say that they can make this year. And we've heard from the defense throughout spring camp, preseason camp, that they are going to make those leaps. And the front seven, absolutely, kudos to them for their performance Saturday night. But they were not really a question mark in my mind. Florida has an abundance of talent on the edge. And those linebackers, I think, are going to continue to improve. But it really has always been, in my mind, the defensive backs. And I, I still think that question is yet to be answered. And I'm surprised that more people aren't talking about that still as a wait-and-see type thing heading into this game. It's more about what's the split going to be at quarterback. That Jaden Hill injury is huge. It's huge in retrospect. I mean, as soon as he went down, I think I felt like that was going to have a huge impact on the defense. Back to the front seven, though. I mean, we knew that they had talent, but there were times last year that they had that talent and, and weren't consistent enough at getting pressure on the quarterback. And that's... I'm saying that with the fact that they led the SEC in sacks. But they only had one game where they had six. Like They didn't have performances like that where they were dominant week in and week out. So they should have looked like that against FAU. If they didn't come out there and have that many sacks and have your preseason first team defensive end wreaking havoc and forcing fumbles and doing what he did, I, I think that that would have been concerning. They should have looked as dominant as they did, and the secondary, I think, was to be as expected because of all the new pieces. Abraham making his first career start. Travez Johnson making his first career start. Mordecai McDaniel making his first career start. Trey Dean, I mean, I think that would have been his first career start at safety. I, I believe maybe he might have started one of the games at the end of the year last season, but he hasn't started a lot of games at safety. So... There's a lot of newness to that secondary, so for them to not totally be on the same page or, or not be a finished product right away, be ready for it because they're not going to be. I think the biggest complaint that fans had was the coverages that they saw and the fact that there wasn't a lot of press or what they felt like was too much zone. And Todd Grantham gave his take and explanation for that on Monday night saying that, hey, we want to be a press team. That's what we're looking to do this season. We want to do more of it. But we're going to mix up our coverages and have some zone and work that into our scheme. And his one of the reasonings, he said, was because if we play press every single play, you're going to get rubbed. Absolutely. Offense is going to do rub routes. And he said, they call it rub, I call it pick. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's, and, uh, he was asked, you know, what does Mullen call it? And he goes, well, I call it a pick. <laughs> but, I mean, so that was at least one reason why he gave for why they were mixing up. But I was paying attention during the game because I saw y'all's tweets. I saw them. I mean, he did – they were mixed up. I mean, Kyrie Elam on several plays was lined up right at the line of scrimmage pressing, and then there were times where he was backed off. So it's also FAU. You're also going to be just as vanilla on defense as you're going to be on offense. So – just don't react too much and also remember that it was the first game starting for a lot of those guys. They were going to run some basic coverages. Absolutely. That's what I was about to say is I don't think that many people, they, they know that the offense isn't going to go show everything against FAU, but then you expect for this defense to play press coverage more than 50% of the time even. I didn't think that that was going to be the case. I think that anytime you have a quarterback like Perry, who is a threat to run, I mean, you necessarily 
don't want these defensive backs unable to, I think, have their heads, react. And have their heads turned. Exactly. You want them to be able to possibly have to adjust mid-play. And I think that that is the dynamic that Perry gives an offense, and that's why Todd Grantham prepared. And, and you know, people call it playing it safe. They want them to be, you know, willing to go hit a player at every single play, uh, be ready to make the tackle as soon as the guy gets the ball. And that's just not feasible, I think, in every scenario. I, I know there are people out there that desire that to happen, and can it improve? Certainly. But that's I not I don't think was the best strategic decision for Florida yesterday. The other thing that I really was thinking about on Saturday was how really in retrospect we underplayed the season opening absence of K- Kyrie Campbell in the middle. We really know last week this defensive line was still coming together in the build-up to the game with the Owls. They added Tyrone Truesdell. I know we didn't do a podcast last week, but they added Truesdell on Monday, and Todd Grantham said he would be playing in that game on Saturday. Later in the week, Andrew Chatfield, a defensive lineman, enters the transfer portal and then is on the field come Saturday. And then when we get to game time and warm-ups, you see that four defensive linemen are out due to a variety of reasons. So really, Florida knew that they needed to have some physicality on the interior of that defensive line because they knew that was an issue last season. Like you said, they weren't getting the quarterback last season like they were getting the quarterback on Saturday. And a lot of that, and what we've heard from this team, is because of the boost that the graduate transfers gave Florida inside the interior. And now you add a third one to that in the other Auburn guy in Truesdell. We knew that that was going to be a huge bump for this team. I thought that Valentino uh, was really good on Saturday. I thought that what him and Newkirk brought was really a boost for this team, having some veteran presence in the interior, knowing that there's some guys that still are not ready. That was, I think, huge on Saturday and something that you can't miss. Now, something Graham and I are going to do every game this season is hand out some helmet stickers for guys that we feel like uh, deserved it after their performance. And we'll do at least two on each side of the ball. I mean, we can hand out more if we feel like a group is deserving. But I just think it's a fun way for us to uh, give some guys some shout-outs and recognize some notable performances. And there were a lot on Saturday. And, Graham, I don't know if you have any that come to mind. Should we start offense? Should we start defense? Which way you want to go? We'll start offense. We'll start offense. I mean, there's some obvious ones that you could hand out. My first helmet sticker, though, on offense is not going to go out to a player, but a position group. Slap one right on the offensive line. They had an amazing performance against the Owls, and I don't think have maybe gotten enough praise for how they played because of some things that I'm not going to get into. But look, at the end of the day, it was game one. It wasn't an SEC opponent. But like I was talking about with the defensive line and how they should have looked in their front seven, the offensive line looked like it should have against the opponent that they played. You should be able to just line up, pound the rock, and go for 400 yards. And that's what they did. And more importantly, no sacks, no quarterback hurries. They gave Jones time to throw all night. So they get my first helmet sticker on offense. Great, great minds, my friend. I actually was going to go a little more specific and pick an offensive lineman. More specifically, Kingsley Egwakon. I thought he had a fantastic game. The former three-star prospect looked nothing like a fringe guy at the Power 5 level. I thought that he looked fantastic. And really, you, you got to call it like it is. I mean, we're sitting here talking all this about 
Anthony Richardson not having a lot of experience and then coming in and showing out. That is absolutely true about Kingsley. He had not started a game prior to Saturday, was a reserve last season, contributed on special teams. But we heard throughout spring camp, this guy was really making some massive strides. I was blown away by by what I saw out there. It looked like he had started double-digit games at the collegiate level. So give him a sticker. You know, first one out there, if he can improve from that, if the rust and all that stuff is applicable to him, I mean, hold on. I mean, they can absolutely be dominant along the offensive line this season. Well, I'm going to make your second helmet sticker on offense obvious because mine's going out to Rick Wells. I got to give him a shout-out. First career touchdown for the six-year senior receiver who basically said, hey, if the NCAA wouldn't have given me an extra year, I'd be sitting at home right now. So very grateful for the fact that he's still being able to play for the Florida Gators and make something of this chance that he's got where, as Mullen talked about after the game when I asked him about Wells, leading the team in receiving for the second straight game and getting his first career score, he had said, like, hey, when I first came in, I had questions about the guy, and then he bought into my program, but he's just been behind some talented receivers in the slot, like Freddie Swain, Josh Hammond, Kadarius Toney, and had it not been for that extra year, he would have never really had the opportunity to show what he could do and what he's developed into. And now he's going to get that in 2021 I think everybody going into the season was wondering, was it going to be Jacob Copeland to step up? Was it going to be Justin Shorter, one of the other guys? And it, I'm sure all of them are going to make plays throughout the season. But few have been talking about Rick Wells, and he was the talk of the game after Saturday, so helmet sticker for him. I agree. He absolutely gets one. Uh, but I'm going to go with my other one, too, Anthony Richardson. I, I don't know how you couldn't give it to him. <laughs> it's got to. Not only was he spectacular, uh, jaw-dropping, whatever you want to call it, but most importantly, he gives everyone, fans, players, coaches, peace of mind because the quarterback position, most teams only have one. And when injury strikes, it doesn't matter how talented the other 21 guys are along your starting unit. If you don't have another capable quarterback, that may spell the end of your season. And as we've come to know in college football, that may spend the spell the end of your college coach or your position group or your time at the university having a guy like Anthony Richardson who is capable to come in and not just provide you with some relief at the position but it looks like and sounds like capable of leading the offense at a similar level as Emory Jones if not at a higher level that that just has to make you breathe easy I don't care if you want to talk about quarterback competition All these other aspects, you can check off. If we lose our quarterback, we're done. And in previous years, since I can remember, since really Urban Meyer left Gainesville, if Florida lost their starting quarterback, the ceiling instantly was lowered. And I came away Saturday no longer feeling as if that was the case for this team. And that is huge. Mm -hmm. People are going to look at that. Analysts are going to look at that. The voters are going to look at that and see that this is a team that is deep, even at quarterback, which is so rare in this day and age. Because if you are usually a capable backup quarterback, you're putting your name in the NCAA transfer portal. You're going to get actual minutes at a place that you can put some stuff on film. And Florida has a luxury at the most important position on the field. 
And right now, that is my biggest takeaway. And that's why Anthony Richardson gets that that helmet sticker. Absolutely. Now, going over to the defensive side of the ball, we could hand out some more on offense like for guys like Malik Davis. But on the defensive side, I think that for me, my first guy is going to be Jeremiah Moon. He played great on Saturday and just happy to see him out there after the injury history that he's had and been through three season-ending injuries in his career. Another guy like Rick Wells is getting another opportunity to play in college because of this six-year, and uh, I think he's going to be a big-time player for the Gators. I mean, he was starting every game last season before he got injured, and I think he's just one of several guys that they have there at that buck spot, but he was lining up at linebacker. I mean, he's one of those guys that they have that, that they can put at several places, so it was just good to see him back out there making plays on Saturday. I'm going to go with Zach Carter. Uh, I, I think that, you know, he talked to talk for a long time, said we're going to live up. And if any unit, I think, kind of like the wide receivers last year with the offense, if any unit on the defense was in for a drop-off, I think that you could have made the case for the defensive line. Based on, I think, on also what I just mentioned, they lost those two big pieces in the interior in Campbell and TJ Slayton, now with the Green Bay Packers. So you could have easily thought that, yeah, Brenton Cox returns and Chris Bogle is back, and yeah, you've got a former five-star in Gervin Dexter, but Zachary Carter may have had to play the interior if you don't get those graduate transfers in there. And he had bulked up and prepared in the offseason to play all three positions on the defensive line. Now that they got the depth, he's able to play at his natural position, and you saw what he can do when he has talented guys all around him. I mean more than half the sacks that he had last season, which was good for 10th in the SEC. I mean, Zach, since we've been here, guys have joked about, some have joked, some have been really serious about hitting Alex Brown's sack total. I mean, we may absolutely see a guy get close. I don't want to slander or, or get too ahead and say that he may break it, but it's a possibility here if Carter produces the way that he did on Saturday, so I'm going to have to give him a sticker. Now, there's a lot other guys in the front seven that I think Graham and I can go with and I think I have an idea who he might go with for his second pick but for mine I'm gonna go a little bit outside of the box Uh oh, and just give this guy a shout out for getting himself into the shape where he could be on the field and that is Big Dez Watson made his UF debut all 400 pounds of him. He got some spotlight on SEC Network, and I think Gator fans and college football fans across the country found out who he was. And, I mean, you had the analyst saying, this guy is bigger than Terrence Cody. He's going to be a space eater. And he played well. Had a stop. I mean, showed that he can handle being in there for some series and have the stamina to do it. So, But, again, he had to lose a lot of weight to even get to that point. We all know how difficult it is to lose weight and how tough it is to try and stick to a diet, especially trying to do something like what he's doing. So props to Desmond Watson, and I think he's going to be a guy that finds his way into the rotation at certain times when they need someone in there to uh, demand double and triple teams. Most guys, when they get to a program, tipping the scale at 400-plus pounds, they are going to spend that first year learning what to eat, learning how to get their body in shape, learning what it takes. They're not going to be able to also master the technique 
get themselves in a position to play. And yeah, it's a position interior of the defensive line where Florida, there was a window, an available slot for a guy to jump in there and take that. And kudos to Desmond Watson for doing it. I think you're going to see him absolutely be really, really big for this team and in more than just a literal <laughs> sense moving forward. My guy's going to go to Avery Helm. And I don't think that Helm played magnificently, but knowing what Florida had at that position, you mentioned Hill going down, the late arrival in Blades, Perkins not quite ready to play, Ethan Pouncey, I don't think we saw too much of him on Saturday. Helm really kind of, in the last three weeks, was thrust into a role that he had been hoping for, but I don't think really... He wasn't going to have. I mean, maybe it was a dream, still in a chance maybe this could happen, but it really was not a sincere possibility. No, I mean, if Jaden Hill wasn't hurt, he wouldn't be out there, and Dan Mullen said this is going to speed up his development. We're going to ask more of him than what we would have been doing at this point in his career. And I think that Grantham's comments last night about playing more press coverage will benefit Helm a little bit more moving forward, knowing the speed he possesses, his vertical leap. I think that you will see him benefit more because he may be able to recover quicker in press coverage than some other guys. I think you will see, once they utilize that more, why this guy emerged as cornerback number two. So I just give him a lot of credit for the role that he stepped into at a tough position moving forward. I think that you're going to see him really take some huge leaps moving forward this season. So I'm going to give him the sticker just for the effort out there. I think that it's really going to start to pay off. I thought you were going to go with Dexter. I mean, he only played pause on two recoveries. If he played more than 20 snaps, I went back and looked and I don't think he played more than 18 snaps. And so give him a shout out for the rate of recovery. I mean, 10% of his snaps out there, if he played 20 snaps and he recovered two fumbles, I mean, 10% of the time you got him out there. He's like, but remember too, his first, his UF debut, he had that pick too. He's like a magnet. Three takeaways in two season openers. I mean, I need to hit up Elias Sports Bureau (laughs) about that stat. I don't know if anyone else has ever done that let alone at the defensive tackle position. No no kidding. No chance. I mean, just has a knack for finding the football. I did think about him as well. I also thought about Mordecai McDaniel. I mean, I don't think that guy thought that he'd be out there for the first series in front of 86,000 people. I probably would have been uh, needing to change the pants a little bit later. So shout out to Mordecai. Like you said at the beginning of this episode, no one there in the secondary made really any glaring mistakes, misssteps. Were there some things that could have been corrected, some things that are desired in the future? Absolutely. But I think that unit was served. I mean, Trevez Johnson gave up the long, deep pass at the end of the game, but he's right there. Yeah. Right there, went up, and I think the receiver just timed his jump a a second better, but he was right there to make the interception. So that's what you want. I mean, you don't want to see a guy getting beat, and I I think that those guys got their first game under their belt, got their feet wet. Now they have a chance to go on the road and potentially have some more success defensively against a team that could not put up any points in their first game. So we will be back with an episode on Friday to preview Florida's matchup against USF to get you ready for Tampa. A lot going on there this weekend. I know Graham and I are looking forward to that trip. And uh, we're just glad that football is back. And when we come back next week, Graham, my gosh, SEC opener will be here in Gainesville. So a lot to look forward to. For Graham Hall, I'm Zach Albaverde.